Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. I am Jim Morrow. I'm a family physician in North Georgia. Uh, Morrow Family Medicine is my practice. We have an office in Cumming, Georgia, and one in Milton, Georgia. And we are doing our best to use state-of-the-art technology and old-fashioned values and care to, as we like to say, bring care back to health care. So that's in Cumming and Milton, Georgia, and through the benefits of telemedicine, just about anywhere else you might be. So if you are interested in a good family medicine practice, we'd love for you to uh, ask questions about Mara Family Medicine and maybe come join us as a patient. I'm here in my office studio as we've been since the pandemic started. I'm in my office studio here, which I have to say is decked out quite nicely now. I've got my new and improved boom microphone and a brand new mic that I'm excited about. John says I don't sound like I'm in a barrel anymore. <laughs> and my producer, John Ray, is in his home, which is just the ultimate radio studio anymore. John, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. I'm real good. I have actually no complaints, which from a 66 year old fat man is really unusual. So I'm excited to be able to say that. So I appreciate you being here. And I I have to tell John, I appreciate what he does and getting these shows produced. He's just fantastic at it. We do this live at one o'clock, the second and fourth Wednesday on North Fulton radio, North Fulton business radio X. And then he takes it and makes it a, a great recording. And we put it out as a podcast, the podcast available on wherever you listen to your podcast, any site you might choose. I think we're going to be on it and I uh, would love it if you'd hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, I'd love it. If you'd leave us a five-star review, that would all be great. Uh, today, as I usually do, I'm going to start with a brief, it's not always brief. Today is going to be brief update on the coronavirus, And it's not really an update on the coronavirus, except to say, uh, that people, this thing's not going anywhere. We've had record days in the last week or so where we've had more cases than we've had yet. Uh, some of that's because of testing, but most of that's because of stupidity. So if you're out and about wear a mask for the love of Pete, wear a mask and, don't fall into the trap of thinking that just because the death rate's not real high from coronavirus, you don't need to worry about it because as strange as it sounds to say, there are worse things than dying from coronavirus. There are things like losing your leg or having a blood clot to your lung that dis- disables you and incapacitates you or having heart failure afterwards or kidney failure afterwards or who knows what afterwards. So you want to avoid this virus. This is not the flu. Wear your mask. And the other thing I want to talk about is something that semantics to some people, but it's important to healthcare workers and to people in healthcare. And that is the difference between isolation and quarantine. Now, those two things at first blush kind of sound like the same thing, but they're not. So if you're infected with coronavirus, you are encouraged, should be in some way required, but you can't do that in the United States of America. Uh, You are encouraged to isolate for 10 days. That means you stay away from people that you don't want to give the virus to for 10 days until the 
disease has run its course, at least from a contagious standpoint. Now, you might still be sick as a dog after 10 days, but the chance of you spreading the virus after 10 days to give anyone the virus is pretty pretty slim. So we encourage people to isolate for 10 days. Now, if you're If you live in a household and someone in the house gets COVID-19, while they're isolating for 10 days, you as the uninfected person need to quarantine for 14 days. So the infected person's isolating and you, the uninfected, are quarantining, which means you too are staying away from people. Now, you can isolate the sick one. You can put them in a bedroom with their own bathroom and bedroom. You can leave them food outside their door, just like if they were in Florence High Security Prison in Colorado. And they can be there, and they cannot infect anyone in the family and spend their time and, and let this pass, and fewer people overall will get the virus. But you, the rest of the family members, need to quarantine for 14 days. And the reason for 14 days as opposed to 10 when you're sick is it can take up to 14 days for you to become sick and infected with the virus after you've been exposed. So you need to quarantine for the entire length of time that you might still get sick. And after the 14 days, you can come back out in the public. What happens, unfortunately, sometimes is people will get infected with the virus and they'll start their isolation and the people in quarantine might be not as good about quarantining or the person isolating might not be as good about isolating and seven days in someone else gets sick in the family. Well, they're in the middle of a two week quarantine, a week into it, they get sick. Now they have to isolate for an additional 10 days. So they would then be locked up, if you will, for a total of 17 days, not 14 days. So if you're not, if you don't get sick, you have to quarantine for 14. If you do get sick, whenever you find out you're sick, the 10 days starts for that. So that's the difference between isolating and quarantine. And if you read or, or listen to podcasts or read articles about this, you'll see those two terms. And I think it's good to understand what they mean. And like I said, to a lot of people, they may be the same thing, but to people in, in medicine and in healthcare, they are really different subjects. October is breast cancer awareness month. Most people know that you see even professional athletes, and I'll leave it to your own opinion about professional athletes wearing uh, pink. Typically they'll wear pink socks or gloves or whatever they might. And I appreciate the fact that they're doing that to try to, to make people more aware that it is breast cancer awareness month. It's a, a month when we try to probably more than usual encourage people to get their mammograms to do their self breast exams and so forth. And, and that's what the month of October has been labeled as for quite some time. I don't know when that started, but it's been quite some time. And I think it's a a very good thing for trying to keep people aware of the importance of screening for breast cancer and, and what having breast cancer means to an individual. Well, one of the things about breast cancer specifically that has changed, well, I can't really say it's changed while I've been practicing. That would go back to 1985 because in 1985, none of this existed. But the idea of how your genes affect things like breast cancer has become very important in medicine in the last several years. So genomics, which is the study of your genome, 
Genetics is the study of genes, individual genes and what they do. Genomics is the study of your genome, your entire DNA profile, if you will, and what impact it has on your body. Uh, this, this is all fairly new. Virtually everything that can go wrong with the human body has some basis in our genes. And until recently, doctors were able to take the study of genes or genetics into consideration only in cases of things like birth defects and then a very limited set of other diseases. Uh, these were conditions like uh, sickle cell anemia, for example, uh, which have very simple, predictable inheritance patterns because each is caused by change in a single gene. Well, with the vast amount of data about human DNA that's been generated by the Human Genome Project and some other research, scientists and clinicians now have much more powerful tools to study the role that multiple genetic factors all acting together have on and, and with the environment also play in much more complex diseases, things like cancer and diabetes and heart disease and cardiovascular disease, these things that constitute the majority of health problems in the United States. So genome-based research is enabling medical researchers to develop improved diagnostics, more effective therapies and strategies about therapy, and have evidence-based approaches for demonstrating clinical efficacy, to be sure it works, and then better decision-making tools for patients and providers. And ultimately, it seems inevitable, really, that treatments will be tailored to a patient's particular genomic makeup. I mean, it probably won't be a while I'm practicing. But I think in my grandchildren's lifetime, how they are treated is going to be determined by their specific DNA sequence and not just you know, what seems to be pretty good for this particular disease. It's important to realize, though, that it often takes a lot of time, effort, and especially funding to move these discoveries from the scientific laboratory into the medical office and the clinic where it can actually be used in a clinical situation to benefit patients. Most new drugs that are based on the genomic research are estimated to be at least 10 to 15 years away. But some recent gene-driven and genome-driven efforts in things like lipid-lowering therapy have considerably shortened that interval. They're a fair number of medicines already that are related to how your genome makes your body interact with both medicines and with, in that case, something like cholesterol. But it takes more than a decade for a company to conduct the studies and so forth that are needed to get approval from the FDA. So most of these things are still quite some distance away. But testing, both screening and diagnostic testing, are already here. There's rapid progress that's already been made in the emerging field of, of pharmacogenomics, which is a real mouthful, which involves using the information about a patient's DNA sequence, their genetic makeup, to tailor drug therapy to their needs. And one of the things that plays a role there is that different people, based on your DNA, metabolize medications at different rates and different ways. And so if you know how a patient's going to metabolize a particular drug, then you can determine if they need more of it or if that drug's just not a good choice for them. So on a, on a personal note, December 3rd will be 10 years ago. I had some chest pain and went to the doctor and 
he did some tests and he said, well, you need a heart cath. I said, yeah, I kind of figured that. So the next morning he did a heart cath and I had two 95% blockages because I'm fat and out of shape. And he put stents in those two arteries, put a stent in each and they put me on Plavix. People may know that Plavix is a, a, people call it a blood thinner. It's not, it's an antiplatelet drug that they use to keep stents from clotting up and to keep other vessels from clotting up and so forth. And so they put me on Plavix. I spent the night in the hospital and went home, went home Saturday morning. And on Tuesday morning, I started having chest pain and I had another heart cath. And it turned out that I had clotted off a stent because I was one of the decent percentage of people that don't respond to Plavix. And now there's a blood test that they can do to determine if you are one of those people who, because of your DNA, is not going to respond to a medicine like Plavix. So they went in, popped through the clot, put in another stent, closed me up, sent me home, changed me from Plavix to a different drug, and I did great and have been for 10 years, thank God, and knock on wood and all that. But that was my personal experience with how this kind of thing today could help me because back then they weren't doing that testing. They were putting people on Plavix, and if they clotted off their stent, they switched them to something else. But um, the clotting off of the stent turned out to be a very interesting thing. Turns out there's a big difference, John. You'll be interested in this. There's a big difference between a 95% blockage and a 100% blockage. And that difference is a whole lot of low blood pressure and some really bad chest pain. So that's worth avoiding. So I encourage people not only to, to take care of themselves like I didn't before that, but also to uh, find out what it is that they might need to be doing uh, versus some other things. So clearly the genetics remains just one of several factors that contribute to people's risk of developing these different types of diseases. But still a, a deeper understanding of genetics as it comes in the future, is going to shed light on more than just hereditary risk. And it's going to reveal the basic components of cells and ultimately explain how all the various elements work together to affect the human body in both health and disease. So we're talking about genes. So what is a gene? If you're not scientific, that's a really good question. Each person's DNA contains the code used to build the human body and keep it functioning. And genes are the very small sections of DNA that code for different individual traits. For example, someone with naturally, naturally red hair has a gene that causes their hair to be red. All, someone like myself, whose, whose mother's father, my maternal grandfather, was bald, has genes that make him tend to be bald. People like John, I'm looking at him on this Zoom call, full head of silver fox gray hair, make me want to just shoot somebody and it would probably be John with his full head of hair, but all these inherited traits are passed down through genes and each person has two copies of the genes. One comes from each parent. And since each parent passes down exactly half of their genes to each child, so that each child has a total number that's correct. Any of the parents genetic traits has a 50% chance of being passed onto their offspring. And that's going to be important here in a minute when I start talking about these specific genes. So if we're using genes and genomes to help screen and help us determine risk and likelihood of cancers, which is what I want to talk about today, first we need to talk about screening for hereditary cancers. And, and in particular, we're talking about breast and to a degree ovarian cancer. 
The goal of screening is to prevent cancer or to find the disease at an early stage, increasing the chance that it can be treated and, and you can be cured of it. Uh, there really is only one cancer that I can ever think of that is actually truly preventable, and that's colon cancer. And I did a podcast to, on colonoscopy. I had Dr. Simon Cofrancesco from GI North with us talking about colonoscopies. And um, if you have a colon polyp and you remove it, if it's the right a particular type of polyp, then you could theoretically have prevented colon cancer and really not theoretically, but potentially could have prevented colon cancer. So that's wonderful. All the other cancers, you can't prevent lung cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, but you can find them early and finding them early is everything. So screening for women who are at average risk of breast cancer typically means between the age of 25 and 40, you should have an annual clinical breast exam. And women 40 and older should have an annual mammogram. Now, some doctors will tell you that you need a mammogram every two years. Don't do that. I think very few people ever go to the pearly gates and say to St. Peter, gee, I wish I hadn't had a mammogram every year. But I can promise you that people say, gee, I wish I hadn't skipped a year. So get a mammogram every year if you're over 40. I'm old school. Everybody knows that. I still think you ought to have a baseline mammogram at 35. And then at 40, start getting one every year. That's kind of fallen by the wayside. I don't understand why. I think it's still a good idea. But certainly at 40 and older, you need a mammogram every year. Now, if you have really dense breast tissue, which is something that's difficult to tell on exam, but easy to tell on mammogram, then they might recommend an ultrasound as well. But that's something that would be taken care of when you go for the mammogram. They would say, hey, we need to get you over here and do an ultrasound also. And you do that. So that's pretty simple. So when it comes to breast cancer and genes, the gene that's important is called BRCA. It's B-R-C-A. And it very simply stands for the breast cancer gene, BR breast, C-R-C-A cancer, the breast cancer gene. So there's BRCA1 and BRCA2. And these are two different genes that have been found to impact a person's chance of developing breast cancer. Every human being has both BRCA1 and 2 genes. It's not whether or not you have the gene. But despite what their name suggests, these genes don't cause cancer. These genes really play a big role in preventing breast cancer. They help repair DNA breaks that can cause cancer, and it can cause the uncontrolled growth of tumors. So because of this, the BRCA genes are known as tumor suppressor genes. But in some people, the suppressor genes do not work properly. When a gene becomes altered or broken, it doesn't work right, and that's called a gene mutation. So what's important when it comes to breast cancer is the BRCA mutation. It it occurs in a small percentage of people, but it's very important. It's about one in 400 or about 0.25% of the population. I should have run that by my sister, Kari, because she's the mathematician in the family. But I think that's right. About 0.25% is one in 400. And about one in 400 carry this mutated BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene. And that mutation occurs when the DNA that makes up the gene becomes damaged in some way. And what's happening in your body is these genes are constantly being reproduced. And sometimes when they're reproduced, accidents happen. And it's like a train getting derailed and things just don't turn out exactly like they should. And so you can end up with this mutation. So when the BRCA gene does mutate, it might no longer be effective at repairing broken DNA. And it can 
or, or to help prevent cancer. And because of this, people who have that are more likely to develop breast cancer. They're also more likely to develop cancer at a younger age. And the carrier of this mutated gene, even if they never get cancer, can pass that mutation down to their offspring. So once that gene mutates, the mutation is sort of perpetuated. And then when you have a baby, it can be passed on as a damaged gene to your child. And obviously that's important to any parent. It's estimated that one in eight women, about 12%, will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. But women with some certain mutations have a higher risk of getting this disease. It's about 55 to 65% of people who have the mutation will develop breast cancer before the age of 70. And about 45% of women with the BRCA2 mutation will develop breast cancer by the age of 70. So regardless which one you have, you've got anywhere from a 45 to 65% uh, chance of developing breast cancer. So that's a lot if you have the mutation. Now, women that have either a one or two, BRCA1 or two mutation, who overcome their breast cancer with treatment also have a higher than average chance of developing a second cancer or recurrence. Cancers that are related to the BRCA1 mutation are also more likely to be what's called triple negative. And that means that they're negative for three different hormone receptors. And the hormone receptors are important because if you have those receptors, then the treatment can be tailored to attack those receptors and help you fight that cancer. If you have triple negative, you don't have any of the receptors that can be used with some of the newer treatments. And so it's much more aggressive and it's much more difficult to treat. So it makes a big difference. So that's another thing about the mutation is it can make you more likely to end up with a triple negative breast cancer. Now, I, I know these numbers can sound alarming, and it, but it's important to note that less than 10% of women who have breast cancer have this mutation. So overall, it's not a large number of people, but if you have the mutation, your chance of getting breast cancer does go up. And with early detection, though, the, the vast majority of breast cancer cases can be successfully treated and, and are in many cases. And that's true even for people that have one of these gene mutations. I want to say one thing about Mara Family Medicine. I'm so incredibly proud of this practice. It just It's such a thrill every single day to be associated with it. And the people that work here, the staff and the clinicians. Uh, I'm just so proud of everybody. And one of the things I'm really proud of is the way that we've been able to change our entire workflow because of this pandemic. I mean, everybody knows everything we do is different. And I tell patients every day that everything about our practice is different until you get into the exam room. And lucky for me, I live in the exam room. So what I do every day for the most part is the same as it always was. But everybody else in my office, everything they do is different. You're not coming in the office and sitting in a waiting room with a bunch of magazines that date back to 1999 and sitting there next to some people three feet away. You're waiting in your car until we text or call you to come in. And you're doing all these other things to keep your distance. And we're all wearing masks and everything's just very different. And one thing that's different is we have two locations. I mentioned that at the start. We have Cumming, Georgia and Milton, Georgia. and we are not seeing anybody who we think might be the least bit sick in the coming location. We're using the coming office for well people 
and the Milton office we're using for sick people of any description. Now, if we think you might have COVID because of what you say when you call, then we're going to triage you over the phone, ask you a bunch of questions. And if it sounds like you might have COVID, we're not even going to bring you into the Milton office. We're going to bring you down there. We're going to test you and likely even examine you in your car so that you're not bringing what might be a certainty of the virus into the office so that people don't get it. So that's one of the things that we've done. And I think it's another example of us trying to bring care back to healthcare. So if we're talking about the, the BRCA genes and the BRCA gene mutations and how they relate to breast cancer, one of the questions that comes up is, can you test for this gene? Can you tell me if I have it or not? And if you can, who should be tested? Well, you can test for it. And although these mutations may increase your odds of developing breast cancer, your odds of having either mutation are really pretty small. It's about 0.25% of the population I mentioned earlier, the one out of 400 that might have the gene. And like I said, too, if you do have it, then yes, you have a higher risk of cancer, but it's not a lot of people. For some people, the chances of having a BRCA gene mutation are much higher. And this is because the genes are inherited. And this is why knowing your family history is important when you're trying to determine your breast cancer risk. If one of your parents has a BRCA mutation, you have a 50% chance of inheriting that mutation. So if you look at population in general, it's 0.25%. But if your parents have a known mutation, it's 50% for you. So it's important to know that kind of thing. And that's why people should be getting these tests done. The odds can also vary depending on a person's, person's ethnicity. For example, uh, people of Jewish descent might have a 2.5% chance of inheriting mutation, or about 10 times the general population. But because the overall odds are so low, most experts recommend that only people with a heightened risk get tested. And insurance companies, the bane of our existence, often only cover genetic counseling and testing for people who are at high risk. A person can be considered high risk for BRCA mutations if they have a family history of breast cancer diagnosed before the age of 50, male breast cancer at any age, multiple relatives on the same side of the family with breast cancer, multiple breast cancers in the same woman, or both breast and ovarian cancer in the same woman. And also if you're of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. It increases the risk, like I mentioned. So when the BRCA test first came out, getting the test done was very difficult. I remember a patient, this is going back, seems like 10 years ago, uh, asked me about getting this done, and uh, it was not an easy thing to arrange, and now it's very simple. But genetic counseling is recommended for anyone who's interested in being tested. You can talk to your doctor about getting a referral to a genetic counselor. I think that's a great idea. And these people can help determine whether testing would make sense based on your family history and your risk factors. And since many of the genetic tests only look at one specific mutation, a genetic counselor can also help determine which mutation to test for because these tests are, are not cheap. Insurance companies, although they test, they, they cover them on occasion. They frequently will not. So you don't want to do blanket testing. You want to be pretty specific about what it is you're doing. The genetic test itself simply involves taking a, a sample of blood or saliva, which is sent to the lab, and it comes back. It can take several weeks or months, but it will come back with an answer for you. The results are not always clear cut. Nothing would be simple, right? 
So a, a test can be positive, meaning you do carry the gene mutation, or a negative result indicates you do not have that particular mutation. It does not, however, rule out the possibility of having mutations in other genes. It also doesn't rule out the possibility of developing breast cancer. I hope I'm making that obvious. This isn't all or none, and you're not going to, we can't say you're not going to get breast cancer if you don't have it. That's absolutely not true, but it might, it will change your risk if you don't have the mutation. Sometimes you get back a result that's inconclusive, and an, an ambiguous test like that means a mutation has been found, but it's really not known if that particular mutation has any effect on the chances of developing breast cancer. And I hope what this points out is that we're still learning here. We're still making our way through this and learning everything we need to know and can know about these mutations. So after you receive a result, you should meet again with the counselor. I think that's important. And whether the results are positive, negative, or otherwise, it can impact a lot of life decisions, and a counselor can help you make your way through those different decisions. So if you test positive, it's natural to feel worried or be worried if you tested positive for this. And it's true. These gene mutations can increase your chances of breast cancer, but it's important to keep in mind that many people who carry these genes never develop breast cancer. And even those who do, they have the advantage of being so aware of the possibility of breast cancer. They're looking, they're aware, they're, they're looking for changes and anything like that. They're going to be certain to get that yearly mammogram and early diagnosis and treatment, make it very likely that they will overcome the disease. So I think that's important as well. Early detections, everything people with the gene mutations, although they have a higher chance of developing cancer and they're more likely to develop it at a younger age, Women who have the BRCA1 or 2 mutation can have a 45% chance of having breast cancer before the age of 70. The good news, though, is with this knowledge, you create a custom early detection plan so that you're watching, you're watching, you're watching. And some people even carry that to a greater extreme. You might be familiar with the fact that Angelina Jolie found out that she was BRCA positive and she had a preventive mastectomy a subcutaneous mastectomy where the breast tissue is removed and implants are put in uh, so that there's no breast tissue there to develop cancer. And she even went farther and had her ovaries and fallopian tubes removed so that she would not develop ovarian cancer. Now to some people that seems very extreme, but that's a completely individual thing. And if you are, that concerned about developing one of these cancers. I, I think it's understandable that you would at least want to consider doing that kind of thing. Now, if somebody with the BRCA mutation does develop breast cancer, the treatments used can frequently be very different than they are for the people who don't have the mutation. Uh, and lately there are new and really every month, it seems like there are new treatments. And a lot of these are based on, whether or not you have these gene mutations and that can help determine the best route for you to go. So lastly, I, th I think it's important to talk about that there are many uh, emotions and decisions that come along with a positive test result for a BRCA mutation is you might feel anything from fear to anger, sadness, guilt, you name it. I, th I think anything's possible. 
And there can be questions about whether your children or your family members should be tested. For some people, it can affect the decision of whether or not to have children. But I think what's important is to have all the information you can have and to be able to make an educated decision on what you're going to do, whether it's about how you're going to monitor yourself for the possibility of developing breast cancer or whether or not you're going to make the decision to have children or not, or once you do, how you get them tested and when and so forth. So knowledge is power, right? I like to think that. And I think that if you have more knowledge about the BRCA mutation, and as we go along, any other mutations that become pertinent, that you're going to be able to protect yourself better than you will if you stick your head in the sand or if you just don't know. So I encourage you to speak to your clinician, your family doctor, your GYN, your internist about these mutations. And especially if you, if it sounds like you're in one of these groups where you have maybe a family history that's important, have the conversation with them. Uh, you'll never regret doing that. And I think it's an important thing that you do so that you can have some peace of mind and you can have a lower risk of any of these disease processes. So that John, that's what your genes say about you and cancer. Wow. A lot to unpack there. So how do you see the, I guess, the research and the technological development changing over time such that people are going to know more and more about what their history may reveal about what the future may hold? I mean, how's that going to unfold? Well, are you familiar with a hockey stick graph? You ever heard that phrase? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that. I think it's the hockey stick graph where for a while you go along at the bottom of the hockey stick and it's kind of flat and man, you get right there to the crook in that handle and all of a sudden zoom and we're not there yet. But I think the information, the learning, the education and all that, that we're going to have about this stuff is going to absolutely start to take off. And that might be 10, 20 years, but I think it's going to absolutely take off. And I think in your grandchildren's lifetime and in mine, that they will have so many more opportunities to avoid these kinds of things. I think it's going to be a huge part of medicine. It's a little bit of medicine today, but I think it's going to be a huge part of medicine in the future. So everybody's got to make their choice in terms of how much they want to know about their family history and that kind of thing. But what, what, um, when someone asks you what they ought to do, I mean, what do you, tell them i mean dig dig a little deeper on that well i mean if someone comes in and they have a a family history of some of multiple people having breast cancer or people having multiple breast cancers then i think it's very important that you do this test i think you'll you'll never regret i can't imagine a situation where you'll be sorry you did the test uh, because the worst case you learn that there are things you need to know so that you can be more aware maybe you start getting the 3d mammogram which I recommend anyway, but maybe you pay the extra that an insurance companies in their ignorance won't pay. So you, you get the 3d mammogram. So, you know, more, maybe you get a breast MRI. Uh, maybe you go become a patient at breast care specialist down in Atlanta, the people that do unbelievable work for people who typically have already been diagnosed or are currently being diagnosed with breast cancer, but you're, you're much more in tune to what's going to happen. And I think if you have that kind of history and that's, that's why the history in general, is so very important to us. If you do have that kind of history, I think it just helps us take so much better care of you. 
and I think all it takes on the patient's part is some willingness to divulge some information. Mm. So switching gears just a bit, what have you got against Rice Krispie treats? <laughs> well, they taste like air. <laughs> In fact, air may be better. So John, John has been looking at my Facebook page. A, a drug rep was incredibly generous to bring lunch today to the office. They're very good sandwiches and a box full of stuff. And it had a, a little pasta salad in it. It had a little fruit salad. But why Why in fruit salad, why is it 85% melon? What, what's up with that? Because six grapes, two tiny slices of pineapple, and about 15 pieces of melon. Because and it wasn't watermelon. It was that nasty honeydew stuff. <laughs> So because along with cheaper. that was a very tightly wrapped Rice Krispie treat. This couldn't be more off topic, a, a, a tightly wrapped in cellophane uh, Rice Krispie treat. And I put it on Facebook and said, why, why, why would anybody eat this? And I know people eat them and that thing's probably pretty good. Cause I'm sure it's loaded with marshmallow cream and that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. holds all that together. And I was trying to be funny. And now you made me talk about it on my podcast. <laughs> well, I I'm just, sure we can edit this out though. No, I think we ought to, I think this ought to be part of what we pass along to the world. I mean, I just love it when I ask you a question, it throws you off. See, no, normally I can't do that because you've got all the answers, but, uh, I love it when I find something that makes you double clutch. You know, I do not have all the answers, but I'm expected to. And and that never gets me in more trouble than it does in my own home. <laughs> Cause I will continually hear you're always right, or you always think you're right, and it's a occupational hazard. I'm expected to be right, and I try to be right, but I especially want my wife to think I'm always right because who doesn't want that? That's right. That's, That's right. right. That's right. Well, happy wife, happy life, however you get there, right? Amen. I love her to death. She's awesome. Um, I have no idea, John, what we're going to talk about next time, but I didn't know what we were going to talk about this time till 48 hours ago, and it kind of came to me. So hopefully it will. I do encourage people, if you're interested, before you sign off, to send us recommendations for topics. We've had that done a time or two, and it worked out great. Mm-hmm. Um, and comments, too. You can do that at drjim at toyourhealth.md. DRGM at toyourhealth.md, or you can tweet us. We are at toyourhealthmd, and I would ask people to do that if you would. I would love it and send me a comment, um, maybe a gift bag. That'd be great. <laughs> with Rice Krispie Streets. <laughs> More rice. <laughs> if I start getting inundated with Rice Christmas Streets, they're coming to you, John. I'll tell you that right now. Okay. I'm going to send them to you. <laughs> so for now, that's to your health.